0: Well, thanks, Ben, and good morning, everybody. And Daniel and Leah do send their greetings. And Daniel and Leah, we we welcome you since you're watching us online. So uh, you're you're here with us, brothers, this morning. Well, we're in um, Mark 14, and we're moving quite rapidly towards the cross. And, you know, if you looked at all four of your Gospels, you would find that this section of the earthly life of Jesus uh, contains the most part of any of your Gospels, And so it should be because it is so important what's going on here that it changed our eternal destiny, not to mention changed the course of history, changed the world, even changed our calendars. Now the last time we talked about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and we saw his humanity there that Daniel talked about as he wrestled with what he was about to go through and he cried out those words to his father famous words not my will but yours be done and that is so important because if jesus had not been obedient to the father's will on that night guess what there would be no salvation for any of us that is why romans 5:19 says that through one man's obedience that man being jesus many will be made righteous just as the disobedience goes on to say of adam in that first garden Created the problem we have, sin, the full and perfect obedience of Jesus in that second garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, solved our problem. But he had to be a human being to stand in our place and to do that on our behalf and to live out the perfect life that we could not live. He also had to be human to stand in our place and to take the punishment that we deserve and that those are some of the reasons why his humanity is so important now the amazing thing about this is at the same time that jesus was human he was and is always also fully god and we've seen lots of proof of that so far in the gospel of mark we've seen him heal the sick raise the dead feed thousands of people with a few fish and a few loaves of bread calm storms Grant forgiveness, cast out demons, and on and on. So, what the Bible very clearly shows us is that Jesus is at the same time fully God and fully man. And I'm going to give you a fancy theological term to remember that by. It's called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union, that he is fully God and fully man, 100% of each, all at the same time. How does that work? I don't know. and uh, I don't understand, and I don't think anybody fully does. In fact, that shouldn't really bother us, because the reality of God's truth, think about this, the reality of God's truth is not dependent upon our ability to understand it. In fact, that's the height of human arrogance, to say that because I can't understand something, it must not be true. And I don't know about you, but I want to worship a God. I want to have a God that I can go to when things happen to my dad or things happen to my kids, as we've heard this morning, who's bigger than I am, who's someone I don't fully understand. And so those types of things, the hypostatic union, should not be faith detractors. They should be faith builders because we should realize every time we, with these fallen, finite Sinful minds of ours. Open our Bible. We're gazing into the mind of the infinite, eternal, all-knowing, perfect and holy God. Of course, there's going to be things we don't understand. That should build our faith to help us know that that's who we're looking at here when we look at our Bible. If if God was someone I could fully figure out, I don't think He'd be much use to me, because He'd be just like me. I need someone far bigger than I am to be my God. So things like the hypostatic union or God choosing and yet man's responsible, all these things we can't get our heads fully around. Those are great. Those should build our faith. Well, this morning we're going to see more of the humanity of Jesus, along with glimpses of his deity, mixed right in with it. And we're going to see that in Mark's account of the betrayal and arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just nine short verses. Now remember, the Garden is that place they had walked to from the upper room that they left at the end of John 14. And they get to the garden uh, by John 17 in and and, uh, gospel or me, John's gospel, and they're here now in Mark's gospel. So let's read Mark 14, 43 to 52. Just a very short section of scripture, but very rich. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, If you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me, Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And the young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your written word, Lord. We thank you for how it reveals Jesus to us the living word. Lord, help us to see him this morning as that friend who will never leave us. Lord, though we betray him, we flee from him. Lord, he never leaves us. We thank you that you are that way. Lord, may your Holy Spirit be our true teacher this morning, for only he can take your words and use them to pierce our hearts. So we ask you to do that now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, each of the other Gospels gives us something about this event that we don't see in Mark. So I want to review some of those for us so we get the full picture of what's going on. Matthew, for instance, tells us that when one of the disciples cut off the servant's ear, Jesus told him to put his sword back in its place because if he wanted to, Jesus said, he could call 12 legions of angels to come defend him at that moment. Luke tells us that Jesus actually touched the servant's ear and restored it. And John tells us that it was actually Peter who swung the sword and cut off the ear. And that when the crowd first showed up there in the garden to arrest Jesus, that Jesus actually spoke and identified himself, but that the minute he opened his mouth, everybody fell backwards, flat on the ground. So with that understanding, let's begin verse with verse 43. And verse 43 begins with these words, while he was still speaking. So we need to ask, what is that talking about? Well, if you go back just two verses to what Daniel finished with last time, you'll see that what he's speaking is in verses 41 and 42, which say this. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer, is at hand. So just as he was telling his disciples that he's going to be betrayed, boom, it happens. Judas, the betrayer, shows up. You know, sometimes there's a long gap between when God pronounces something and when we actually see it happen. But other times it's like this there's no gap at all. He says something and it happens immediately the next moment. And that's all the more reason that we need to listen to God and what he has to say, and just believe it, obey it, and do it, and follow it right away. Because we don't know whether there will be a long delay or not, or whether it will happen right away. And that's especially true with respect to the issues of judgment that the Bible speaks about, and the issue of our need to be saved, because we don't know when judgment's going to come. There will be a judgment of the earth someday at the end times, the last days that Daniel talked about a few weeks ago and people argue all the time about when that's going to be, what the signs are and all sorts of stuff. But you know what? There's an end times for each of us here in this room at some moment that's not too far off. Most of us, it's 70 or 80 years from when you're born. And so the issue we need to be thinking about is what am I going to do in that end times for myself, not when this is going to happen for the world. Do I have a savior? Do I have a covering for my sin? And so it's very important that we listen to what Jesus has to say, particularly when he talks about things like sin and judgment and salvation. Now note also in this verse that there's a crowd accompanying Judas, made up of the religious leaders, the chief priests, it says, the scribes, and the elders, and that they were carrying swords and clubs John also tells us that they had torches with them, for it was at night time. John also tells us that there was what he describes in his gospel as a band of soldiers with them as well. And the Greek word that he uses for band is the same word as cohort, and a cohort was one-tenth of a legion of Roman soldiers. A legion was 6,000, so a cohort was 600 soldiers. So here is this huge religious crowd, armed itself with clubs and swords, backed up by 600 of the most well-trained, well-disciplined fighting men on the face of the earth, coming out at night with torches to arrest the most peaceful man who ever walked the face of the earth, who had never once posed a physical threat to anybody. That may sound odd, but it tells us how terrified they actually were of Jesus and what they were about to do. Maybe it was because of the things that they had seen him do. Maybe it was because of the things that they had heard him say. But they clearly believed, deep down inside them somewhere, that he had tremendous power and that they had better be careful, and that's why they came out so well-armed. And that would explain... Why, in John's account, we are told that when Jesus spoke at first to them, they all fell over backwards. You see, even this large, armed, hateful, unbelieving crowd recognized signs of the deity of Jesus right amongst his humanity there in the garden. Because the truth about Jesus is really not that hard for anyone to see. In fact, Jesus says it's so simple that a child can grasp it. You see, it's just that our sin willfully, or makes us willfully suppress it. In fact, that's exactly what Romans 1.18 says, that man knows the truth. We know there's a God that he made us, that he's powerful, that there's a judgment, but we willfully suppress the truth. Let's look at verses 44 and 45. Here we see that the means by which Judas betrayed Jesus was with a kiss, Something that normally would have meant a sign of friendship and affection. Oh, how that speaks of the deceitfulness of sin and the wickedness of our own hearts. That we have the capacity to use a sign of intimate friendship as a tool to betray others. And the sense here is that this this was not just one kiss. The Greek word is, is as if Judas was kissing him Repeatedly, Actually, that's what it says, is kissing him, not just betrayed with a kiss, which makes sense, given how dark it was. Remember, this is nighttime. There's no streetlights or anything out there because one solitary kiss in the midst of this huge crowd of people was probably not enough to identify who Jesus was. So Judas had to keep repeatedly kissing him until the guards and the Romans and the soldiers could see who it was that they were supposed to seize. In fact, Isaiah 53, two says this, that our Messiah had no former majesty about him that we would look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And so the other thing going on here, Daniel mentioned this last week, is Jesus looked like an ordinary guy. He was an ordinary Jewish man. That's what he looked like in his humanity. He didn't look like a rock star or a movie star or some slick, well-hair-coiffed politician. So Judas had to identify him with these multiple kisses because his attraction was not externally physical. His attraction was an internal spiritual attraction. Also, what Judas did in repeatedly kissing Jesus was a fulfillment of something said in Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse, that means many, lots, are the kisses of an enemy. Now note something else in verse 45, and it is how Judas refers to Jesus. He calls him rabbi there, which simply means teacher, because that is all Jesus was at best to Judas. When Thomas had asked Jesus a question earlier that night in John's gospel, from which we get the answer in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man, no man comes to Father but through me, In John 14, 5, Thomas begins this question about how do we know the way by saying, Lord. He says, Lord, how do we know the way? All the other disciples throughout the Gospels, over and over again, refer to Jesus as Lord. But here on this night, the best that Judas could muster up was teacher. You know, there are many, including those in many religions, who acknowledge that Jesus was a great teacher, But that really means nothing. Someone who truly knows him, someone who is truly in a relationship with him, will want to call him Lord. And it is when we, like Judas, slip away from letting him be Lord in some area of our lives that we then are still capable of great sin and treachery, just like Judas. If Jesus is not allowed to be Lord over our speech, we will sin with our words. If he's not allowed to be lord over our bodies, what we put into them, what we do with them, we will sin with them. If he is not allowed to be lord over our emotions, we will sin in how we express them. If he is not allowed to be lord over our finances, we will sin in how we use or handle them. If he is not allowed to be lord in our marriage, we will sin in how we treat our spouse. And if he is not allowed to be lord in our families, we will sin and how we lead them and the list could go on and on now in verse 46 and 47 we see the crowd now physically sees Jesus and note that Jesus doesn't resist because this is all part of God's divine plan that Jesus would be wrongfully arrested wrongfully tried and then wrongfully convicted and then wrongfully executed so that we could be saved by having the sins of us all put on his back, the one who knew no sin as he hung there on that cross. We also here have the act of Peter now in taking up the sword to defend Jesus and doing great damage with it to this poor slave of the high priest. You know, faith and the kingdom of God are not advanced by the sword. They are advanced by hearing the word of God And that takes ears to hear. And so it's rather quite ironic that Peter's action would have, if not corrected by the Lord, diminished this poor man's ability to come to faith, not increased it. You see, Jesus does not need military help or that which often goes with it modernly, political help, to advance his kingdom. And throughout church history, believing and acting otherwise has always proven to be a big mistake. Now, from Luke's Gospel, we know that Jesus healed the servant's ear, which shows us that Jesus will clean up the overzealous mistakes of his followers and that he cares and shows grace to those innocent bystanders that we sometimes trample over as his followers. But this is also, right in the midst of this crowd, a remarkable demonstration of his creative power as God. It happens right in the midst as they come out to seize him. And yet, blinded by their sin, not one of them says, hey, wait a minute, did you see what that guy just did? He just gave that servant a new ear. Whether he put the old one back on or created a new one, we're not quite sure, but either way, it demonstrates the creative power of deity. You know, maybe we shouldn't be doing what we're doing. What a reminder that is to us of how our own unrepentant sin will blind us to the acts of God and the reality of God and the truth of God that's going on right in our own midst. It's also at this point that in Matthew's account, Jesus rebukes Peter and says that if he had wanted to do so, he could have called up 12 legions of angels to come rescue him. Remember what I said a moment ago? A legion with 6,000 Roman soldiers. You know how many soldiers that is? 72,000 angels is what Jesus is saying here he could have called upon to come help him. Can you imagine what a scene that would have been if that had happened here? Back in 2 Kings 1935, we have recorded for us that one angel shows up at a battle the Jews were having and kills 185,000 Babylonians like that. So it would have been quite a different scene had Jesus done that. But there's something Else to note here, and that is what we talked about a moment ago, that Jesus clearly does not need our help in defending himself because he doesn't call for any help here. The other thing to note here is that Jesus, although he has this power to call upon 12 legions of angels or more if he wanted, he doesn't use that tremendous power to help himself. In fact, we never see him use his powers of deity to help himself in the Gospels. Sure, he used them all the time to help others, but not himself. What tremendous humility that shows us. He used his powers here to restore the servant's ear. Earlier in the Gospels, he used his powers as God to heal leopards, make the blind see, make the lame walk, cast out demons, uh, calm storms, provide food, even make wine for a great crowd of people. But he never used them to help himself. And that's part of what Paul's talking about when he writes these words in Philippians 2, 6, and 7 about Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now moving on to verses 48 and 49. We see the submission of Jesus again here to the will of the Father and his obedience to the word. For he basically tells this crowd, look, you didn't need to come out here with clubs and swords and torches and soldiers to capture me because I'm just gonna let the scripture be fulfilled. And so he voluntarily allows himself to be taken captive and he voluntarily declines a way of escape whether it was through Peter's sword or through 72,000 angels, because all of this had to happen in order for the plan of God to be fulfilled. You see, without being arrested, Jesus could not have been put on trial. Without being put on, tr- without being put on trial, he could not have been wrongfully convicted of blasphemy. Without being wrongfully convicted of blasphemy, he could not have been put to death, and without being put to death, he could not have paid for our sins and without paying for our sins we could not be reconciled to God and without being reconciled to God we would have no eternal life you see this is why Jesus said over in John 12 27 right before the Last Supper which is how this whole evening began a few hours earlier he said but for this purpose I have come to this hour so of course he wasn't going to take the way of escape in his humanity Jesus here in the garden was able to fully submit himself to his Father's will because he truly, fully trusted in the will of God and in the sovereignty of God. And it is in the same way that we, brothers and sisters, can find the ability to submit to God's will in any area of our lives when we learn to trust in his will and we learn to trust in his sovereignty. In verse 50, we have one of the saddest parts of this entire event that are told there and told in the other Gospels as well, that all, and when it says there that they all left, that is the disciples, that all of his disciples left Jesus and fled. Or in other words, they abandoned him. And we're gonna come back to that in a few minutes. Verses 51 and 52 contain something some people find a little odd, but I dug into it. And what we have here is this young man who is following Jesus, but he gets caught, and so we're told he slips out of his clothes and runs away naked. Now, most commentators think that this was Mark himself and that this was his own way of admitting that he was no better than any of the other disciples. Because remember, Mark was a very young man at the time, and he wasn't one of the original disciples. It is believed that he got most of his gospel from his mentor, Peter, but he was evidently here for this event as some sort of distant bystander. Some commentators would also say that there's some evidence that the Last Supper might have taken place in the upper room of the home of Mark's parents, because later in Acts, I think it's in Acts 12, we're told that the disciples would regularly meet in the home of Mark's parents. And so if that's true, perhaps Mark had been home, he knew something was going on upstairs, He saw this crowd leave and walk to the garden, and maybe as a curious young kid, he threw on a linen cloth and started following out after them. However he got there, there he was, and he recounts this about what happened. In any event, the point is that everyone, including Mark, who was following Jesus that night, abandoned him, abandoned him, and that is what we need to talk about as we consider some of the big-picture items from this event after we've now gone through Verse by verse. You see, all in one night, Judas was betrayed by Judas, or Jesus was betrayed by Judas, he was denied by Peter, and then he was abandoned by all of his disciples. In fact, from this point forward until we get to the cross, Jesus is on this sort of arc or path of ever increasing abandonment, first by the one who was against him anyway, Judas then moving to the other disciples who flee in the scene we have before us now, the next morning to the Roman and Jewish legal systems as they deny him all of his rights under their laws, then to his entire people who reject him before Pilate later that same day and choose Barabbas over him, and finally and most importantly to the cross itself where all the disciples are gone except John, and then most significantly when Jesus is on the cross, In his humility, as he felt the weight of our sin on his back and the corresponding judgment of the Father for that sin, which we rightfully deserve, he cried out these words which expressed his own sense of abandonment by God, of what he was going through. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew that that moment was coming as the Father saw our sin on his back And it was most likely in anticipation of the spiritual pain of that, far more so than the physical pain and torment of the cross, that he sweat those great drops of blood in the garden that we heard about last time. For Jesus knew that abandoned by man and abandoned by God, there he would hang on that cross all alone so that we could be set free from the horrible penalty of our own sin. As Greg Laurie says, Jesus cried out those words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me so that you and I don't ever have to so long as we put our trust and faith and confidence in him to save us from our sins. But if we don't, we will be forsaken by God and abandoned to that place the Bible calls hell. That is the truth which the Bible tells us and that is the love of Jesus for us, that he has made a way for us to be saved. We just need to take that way and not hesitate. For as we saw in our first verse this morning, we never know how long it will be between the time God declares something and when he brings it to pass. Now let's consider something else about the humanity of Jesus, and it is this. Because he is human, we can relate to him and he can relate to us. This means that he can fully understand everything we go through in this life, all our trials, all our pains, all our joys. In fact, Hebrews 4.15 tells us this. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so that means that he understands all of our struggles, and he knows how to get us through all of them without sin so if you have ever been betrayed or let down by someone you loved by a friend Jesus much more so and you can take that to him for help and guidance as to how to deal with it if you ever had your good spoken evil of as happened to him all the time as his words were always twisted around by his enemies you can take that to him because he's been through it, even more so. If you've ever felt abandoned by those who should love you, or you ever felt all alone, Jesus much more so, because there he was on the cross, abandoned by all of humanity, and abandoned in his humanity, even by God the Father. So we can take that to him. If you've ever felt like you've been treated unjustly, maybe denied some or all of what you thought were your rights, Jesus much more so, It happened to him there in those trials. And so you can take that to him. If you've ever suffered for the wrongs of someone else, Jesus much more so, since he suffered for every wrong that we ever committed or ever will commit. And so you can take that problem to him. No wonder Isaiah 9, 6 spoke of Messiah as being our wonderful counselor. And you know what that verse calls him next? Right after wonderful counselor in the same breath, Mighty God. That means that unlike any earthly counselor, Jesus can not only listen to us as we talk to him about our troubles, but he can actually do something about them because he is God. So I would submit to you, here's how you know if a counselor you may be seeing is a good counselor. If they take you straight to Jesus, the only wonderful counselor and mighty God, not to the counsel invented by man. Now, throughout this last night in the life of Jesus before the cross, we see something else about him which ought to encourage us and which is really the main theme of this message. And it is what a faithful friend Jesus is to his disciples here and by implication to us. And to see the magnificence of this truth, we need to first consider how much we have been and still can be just like his disciples that night who fled from him. Certainly, that type of behavior marked our life before salvation. Now, we may not have hated God, and I doubt there's very, very many people here in this room that were actual devil worshipers, but we were all, in one way or another, apathetic towards God. And here's the problem with that. The first and greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the way God sees things in his kingdom, the opposite of loving him is not necessarily, as we would think, only hating him. It's also just not really caring much about him at all. And simply ignoring him, and living as if he doesn't really exist. And all of us were surely guilty of that before salvation. Yet the Bible says in Romans 5, 8, that while we were sinners just like that, God still showed his own love for us, in that he sent Christ to die for us. Now, after we got saved, we became friends of God. Jesus even calls his disciples that. That same night in John 15, you can read it, John's account of their walk from the upper room to the garden. He refers to them as friends. But even as his friends, there have been times when we have abandoned him. Either we've denied him in front of somebody like Peter has. Maybe we've abandoned him to think we're going to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Maybe it's to follow the ways of the world, or just when we go for long periods of time without even talking with him much. And yet he has always remained faithful to us as a friend. Sure, sometimes it may seem like God is far away from us, but the truth is, the reality is, that he's never moved. It's us that have moved away from him. And so he is never more than a prayer of repentance away. Now, let's see the faithfulness of Jesus as a friend to his disciples in this event that we've been talking about. First, he was faithful to tell them the truth at all times, no matter what the consequences, no matter what the circumstances. Think about what Daniel talked about last time. They wanted to sleep. Jesus told them the truth. You need to pray so that you won't be tempted. Here we are, at least one of them wants to take up swords to defend him. And Jesus tells them the truth. No, don't do that. You see, as our faithful friend, we can always count on Jesus to tell us the truth. It may not be what we want to hear, but he will always do it, and his word is truth. That's what John 17, 17 says, and his truth will set us free. Secondly, Jesus stood up for the disciples, even though they were about to flee from him. For when the armed crowd came, we see that he voluntarily let Judas kiss him and in Matthew's gospel, he even steps forward and says, here I am, I'm Jesus. So that they would let his disciples go free and take only him. And so that this would all happen without a fight because that would have likely gotten all the disciples arrested and who knows, maybe even crucified the next day as well. And when Peter does something stupid, Jesus immediately corrects it so that they would have no cause to come after Peter. Jesus defended them even before the cross right here in the garden and sacrificed himself for their sake out there in that garden that night. In the midst of all this, Jesus even displays tremendous grace in the face of his enemies in that it is the slave of the high priest, one of the guys who'd been conspiring to kill him, who hated Jesus, whose ear Jesus restores. You know, Proverbs 18.24 says that a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Well, that friend is Jesus. Brothers are often close. I'm close to my brother. But as our friend, Jesus is even closer. You see, death or great distance can separate us from a brother, but not from Jesus. Jesus. He just finished telling them in John 15 that he dwells in them and they dwell in him. And death will bring us even closer to him for then we will see him face to face. Proverbs 17, 17 says that a friend loves at all times and that is what we have in Jesus as our friend, someone who loves us at all times, even when we stumble. Remember what Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Think about that. Nothing in all of creation. Nothing. That means not even you, not me. Not Satan, not demons, not the laws of man, no circumstance you might find yourself in can ever separate you from the love of Jesus if he is your friend. There's nothing that anybody can do to you, and there's nothing that anybody has done to you that can separate you from that love. You see, although Jesus may have been abandoned by everyone and left all alone, we who are in Christ are never abandoned and are never alone. He told his disciples in his very last words in the Gospel of, Mar- of Matthew, Matthew 28, 20, the last few words of that whole Gospel. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In both the old and New King James translations of the Bible, we have this statement in Ephesians 5, 6, that God has made us accepted, accepted in the beloved, because we're in Christ, we're accepted by God, meaning that in Christ we are fully, finally, forever, right with God. Now, I don't know about your past, and frankly, I don't have to, and maybe I don't want to, (laughs) because according to 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you are all, if you know Jesus, brand new creations. You're not defined by your past. You are not prisoners of your past. In fact, that verse says that the old you has passed away So your identity now is in Christ, not your past. But that being said, you may have been abandoned by someone or several people in your past. You may have gone through periods of great loneliness. Yet in Jesus, your beloved friend, you are never abandoned and you are never alone. Ephesians 1 goes on to say that in Jesus, you and I are forgiven, blessed, chosen, adopted, redeemed, and we have and always will have grace lavished upon us. So brothers and sisters, we need to dwell on those things, not our past. Do you think the disciples dwelled on what they did to Jesus that night? I don't think so, or else they never would have so boldly declared the gospel like they did all throughout the book of Acts, or turned the whole world upside down like Acts tells us that they did. And certainly nowhere does the scripture tell us that they dwelled on their past. I think they dwelled on the fact that Jesus still loved them even though they were such boneheads that night and that he still died and was resurrected for them. Now, when we do go through times of betrayal, abandonment, injustice, or loneliness, because that will happen. We live in a fallen world. We can use them to help us get to know Jesus better. He went through on our behalf. And understand and appreciate that to a deeper level. Because he suffered those same things. That's what we're seeing here in this section. He suffered those same things, betrayal and abandonment, as a human being and as our friend, all on our account. Because of his betrayal and his abandonment, God will never betray or abandon us. And we have someone in Christ who will stick closer to us than a brother. Because the injustice that he went through we will never have to receive God's justice for our sin that we so rightly deserve because of the loneliness that he went through. We have someone in Christ who is with us and at all times. You see, <clears throat> what Jesus wants with all of us, and you hear this word a lot, but I want to unpack it, what Jesus wants with all of us is to be in a relationship with us. In fact, that's how we actually define what we call eternal life. John records in John 17, 3, that in the midst of a prayer, Jesus prayed that same night in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said this in verse 3. This is the definition of eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So this is the definition of eternal life. This is what salvation is all about, straight from the lips of Jesus. It doesn't start when you die, It starts right now the minute you enter into that relationship with him where you know him. So we gotta ask the question, what does it mean then to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent? And to unpack that, I need to give you a short little lesson in the Greek language. The Greek language was much, much more precise than English. English will use one word that might have dozens of meanings and you have to figure out the meaning from the context. And for me, the funniest one to illustrate this is the word run, R-U-N. If you looked at the expanded Oxford Dictionary, there's over 100 definitions of the word run. Water runs, you can run in a race, you can run in an election, uh, you can run an engine, women can get runs in their stockings, you can go on a missions trip to a third world country and get the runs. I mean, there's just all (laughs) kinds of uses of the word run. But in Greek, they would have a different word for all those things. And so the same thing's true here with this word, to know. And the Greek language had four different types of words for know, there was, and these are really the different types of knowledge. There was an academic or intellectual type of knowledge, like a two plus two equals four. They had one word for that. There was a a secondhand type of knowledge, or kind of like an urban legend kind of knowledge that people have told you about or people are talking about. They had a word for that. There's a type of knowledge that we would call intuitive knowledge, that you just kind of have a sense that something's gonna happen, like, like I, I sense my car battery is gonna die in the morning and my car won't start, or I sense you know my joints are gonna hurt when I wake up. And then there was this fourth type of knowledge, which is the word being used here, which was a knowledge that was an experiential, relational, intimate type of knowledge, in fact, it refers to such an intimate type of knowledge that in that culture, the euphemism they would have for what, what a husband a wife would do on their wedding night, they would say the husband got to know his wife. That was the same word. It's that intimate of a type of knowledge. And so when Jesus says here, this is eternal life, that they may know you, that means know God in an experiential, relational, intimate way. That's what he's talking about. Let me use an example to help illustrate this. Um, This past couple weeks, we've seen a number of human beings go into outer space for a little bit. And when they're up there, they could probably see that the Earth was actually round. Well, before they went up there, in the boat that we're all in, having never been there, is academically, we have figured out that the world is round. People have taken measurements and figured things out that it must be round. We all know it's secondhand kind of urban legend because we've read it in our textbooks, we were taught that in school, everybody tells us that. We kind of have an intuitive sense that it must be round because uh, the mast of a sailboat kind of disappears as it goes off into the distance. But to know it in this experiential sense, the Greek word was actually gnosis, to actually know it that way, you'd have to go to outer space like those few human, human beings did a few days ago and you could see that it is round. And so that's what's being talked about here, to know God in that way when you've actually seen it, experience it. It's it's way beyond intellectual, academic knowledge. Yes, we are to love God with our minds, but God doesn't want our knowledge of him to be just intellectual or because we read about him in a book or just because someone told us about him or just because we have a sense that there must be a God. He wants us to know him in this personal, experiential, intimate way. You know, we don't enter into eternal life by taking some test and getting all the answers right or by having some warm, fuzzy, intuitive feeling that God must be real. We enter into it by coming into this personal, experiential, intimate relationship with him, which he invites us to. And that comes by spending time with him and living life with him, talking with him in prayer, listening to him in his word, you know, it's hard to say you're in a relationship with someone that you don't spend any time with, right? And you talk to relational experts, and they'll tell you the most important thing about a healthy relationship is what? Communication. You've got to talk. You know, um, Pastor Byron at Rolling Hills Covenant used to use this example, which I thought illustrated it so well. Because Jesus talks over and over again in the New Testament, and God uses this in the Old Testament about Israel, Jesus speaks in the New Testament about his relationship with us, his church, as being like a marriage, right? Well, imagine what kind of marriage it would be if a husband married his bride, built her a big, beautiful building, put a nice sound system in it, got some good worship leaders, hired, you know, had to put some stained glass windows in for extra measure, and then he only showed up on Sunday mornings, sing a few songs to her, talk to her a little bit, and listen to her, and went, up, went home, went about his business, and didn't see her again until the next Sunday morning. Would you call that a marriage? Probably not. And yet, for many of us, that's what our relationship with Christ is like. It's limited to just that, and Jesus is calling us to something much more, much deeper, to enter into this living, vibrant, experiential relationship with him. Now, note that John 17, 3 speaks of knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Why is that added on? Why does it say, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent? Well, think for a moment. What is the one thing that prevents us from knowing God and being in a relationship with him? It's our sin, right? He's holy. He can't have any sin in his presence. Well, who's the only one who can take away our sin? Jesus Christ, because he paid for it in full and forever. So knowing God is not possible except through Jesus Christ. And that's why this verse says, and Jesus, whom he has sent. He is our true friend who paid for our sins, the one who lived for us, the one who died for us, the one who was resurrected for us, the one who forgives us, saves us, redeems us, gives us new life. The Bible even says he intercedes for us, he prays for us, even when we forget to pray for ourselves, and he is the one who lives inside of us and the one who will never leave us. Now, sometimes I think we have difficulty reconciling How can Jesus be king and Lord and also our friend? But these are not either or things. They are both and things. And that takes us back as we conclude what we started at the beginning, this little theological thing called the hypostatic union, the fact that Jesus is fully and at the same time all God and all man because as fully God, yes, he's our Lord and our king but as fully man, he is our faithful friend. And so the question for each of us in this room this morning or listening online is, do you know Jesus as your friend in this experiential, relational, intimate way? And I think there's three things that often get in our way of that, both inside the church and outside the church. And you might call them the three R's, and I don't mean reading, writing, and arithmetic. What I mean is rules, Ritual and relationship, uh, excuse me, and religion. Rules, ritual, and religion. Those get in the way of relationship. What friend do you have where you have lists and lists and lists and lists of rules about how you're going to relate to each other? Sure, you have certain ground rules, things you know you're not going to do, lines you're not going to cross, and we have that in the Bible. But we don't add all kinds of rules to that in our relationships with our friends. What kind of friend do you have? where you go through rituals every time you get together and just repeat the same thing over and over and over again. I don't think anybody has a friend like that. That's not what Jesus is calling us about, calling us to here. And religion really just takes both of those and puts them all together and lets us create our own type of God. And that's not what he's calling us to either. He's calling us to relationship. The Bible says in the Gospels that Jesus was known as a friend of sinners. And he came to forgive us from our sins and to help us learn to not sin anymore. And if you're here this morning or listening online and you know you're a sinner, you've never come to Christ, he's here for you. He wants to save you by being your savior. He wants to take over your life by being your Lord, but he wants to be your friend by walking alongside you through all the ups and downs of life. Maybe you're in the church. Maybe you already know Jesus, but you've never really gotten to know him deeply (laughs) and you know that you could know him a little bit deeper than you do now I would invite you also along with those who don't know him yet to take a moment as we close in prayer here and just make a commitment to the Lord to Jesus I want to I want to become your friend I want to know you as my friend you know in 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 Revelation 3 towards the end uh, the last of the letters to the seven churches there's a letter to the church at Laodicea it's a church so it's got Christians in it And Jesus is depicted there as being outside the church, knocking on the door, trying to get in. And that often is somewhat what our relationship is with Jesus. He's right there. He he wants to be in. He wants more of our life. He wants to be more involved in every little thing we do. And it goes on to say there that Jesus says, come, let me enter and dine with you. Well, if that doesn't picture relationship, I don't know what is. We've seen meal after meal after meal. (laughs) so far in the Gospel of Mark, because that pictures relationship, pictures spending time with someone. And so maybe you're in the church, maybe you're, you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, but you haven't really gotten to know him as friends, someone you would dine with. I would invite you right now, to, as, as we close in prayer, to, to spend a minute and just enter into that relationship with him. So let's bow our heads. Um, I'm going to just keep it silent for a few little bit to give you a chance to do that, and then I'll close us in prayer and the band will come back up. Father God, thank you that you sent your son Jesus to be the friend of sinners. Lord, many of us here have found him to be that kind of friend as we have confessed our sins, come to Jesus to forgive us from our sins, and entered into a relationship with him. And Lord, we praise God for that. We know there also may be some here or some listening who don't know that yet. So God, I pray you would send your Holy Spirit to them right now that you would move them to their knees, Lord, to accept you as Lord and Savior. Lord, for many of us here in the room that do know you, we just confess we've let that relationship get stale. We've gone from Sunday to Sunday to Sunday without talking with you, without listening to you. Lord, forgive us. We know your death on the cross pays for that sin as well, for all the sin we've ever committed. But Lord, help us. By the power of your spirit to want to spend more time with you jesus we know you want to spend time with us may we have the same passion to spend time with you may each of us commit to do that more in these coming weeks through quiet times of prayer maybe through a walk just talking with you time in your word maybe reading a devotional listening to a sermon talking to other christians lord help us just to find you everywhere and to be with you everywhere we go we love you. We praise you. We thank you for these amazing words from Mark. We thank you that you are a faithful friend who will never leave us. Amen.